announcement. So let's open our Bible to Ezekiel chapter 40. I know some of you thought we'd never get that far. But here we are. Ezekiel's tour de future. Everyone who reads the last nine chapters of Ezekiel asks and therefore must answer this question. Will there be animal sacrifices in the temple during the future millennial kingdom on the earth? You have to ask because not too far into reading about this millennial temple, you encounter chapter 40, verses 38 through 43. You can turn there or they're up on the screen. I'll read them to you. There was a chamber and its entrance by the gatepost of the gateway where they washed the burnt offering. In the vestibule of the gateway, there were two tables on this side and two tables on that side on which to slay the burnt offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. At the outer side of the vestibule, as one goes up to the entrance of the northern gateway, there were two tables. And on the other side of the vestibule of the gateway, there were two tables. Four tables on this side and four tables on that side by the side of the gateway. Eight tables on which they slaughtered the sacrifices. There were also four tables of hewn stone for the burnt offering. One cubit and a half long, one cubit and a half wide, one cubit high. On these they laid the instruments with which they slaughtered, the burnt offering and the sacrifice. Inside were hooks, a handbreadth wide, fastened all around, and the flesh of the sacrifices was on the tables. The answer to the question, will there be animal sacrifices in the temple at Jerusalem during the future millennial kingdom on earth is? Yes. Now, Ezekiel is not the only book that says animals will be sacrificed in the future kingdom. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 6 also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord and be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. Zechariah 14, 16, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the Lord, uh, the King, rather, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, which involves lots of animal sacrifice. And then Jeremiah 33, beginning in verse 15, In those days and at that time I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness, he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called the Lord, our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings and to sacrifice continually." But you might say, I thought Jesus' death on the cross abolished animal sacrifices once and for all. Or you might say, I thought conditions on the earth during the millennial kingdom would be near perfect with lions lying down with lambs. Well, let's talk about the place of sacrifices in relation to the cross of Jesus Christ because that is a, an important question. The sacrifices in the Old Testament never saved anyone. You, you already know that. A person was saved when they believed God and were justified by His grace. The once-for-all sacrifice for sin by Jesus was portrayed 
It was illustrated by the animal sacrifices. One author put it like this, the sacrificial system of the Mosaic Covenant pictorialized the work of Jesus Christ in order that the Israelite might understand what the Messiah would accomplish on behalf of mankind. So by themselves, sacrifices do not in any way diminish Christ's once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. In the Old Testament, they pointed forward to it. In the Millennial Kingdom, they will point back to it. The cross remains the focal point, and salvation will be as it always has been, by grace alone, through faith alone. And so once you just remind yourself of what you already know, that you weren't saved by offering a sacrifice, uh, you know, the sacrifice was a symbol of what Christ would do. And it can be a symbol whether he's going to do it in the future or whether he's already done it. Some authors compare, even though it's, it's bloodless, obviously, uh, they compare it to the memorial uh, of communion, where we look back on the cross. Uh, now, some want to say that, well, in communion you reenact the Lord's death. He's actually, you know, being... Uh, re, he's dying again each time, but that's not true. It's simply a memorial. It's a reminder of what the Lord has done. And so whether you're looking forward in time to the once-for-all sacrifice or looking back from the future on it, uh, that is the focal feature. That is how people get saved. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world, and everything else is just a picture to show you what that's all about. Now, thinking about folks looking back on the cross brings us to the second concern that conditions on the millennial earth will dictate against the slaughter of animals. What you need to understand about those thousand years is that the inhabitants of the earth will still be in their natural human bodies. This is always something that trips us up. We live in what we call the church age. Once the church is resurrected and raptured, taken to heaven, at some point after that comes the seven years of the great tribulation. At the end of the Great Tribulation, Jesus returns from heaven with the church, with you and I, and he establishes on the earth a 1,000-year kingdom, the millennial kingdom. The, one of the first things he does is he separates, the Bible says, the sheep from the goats, the saved from the lost, the saved from the unsaved, the believers from the non-believers, because people survive the Great Tribulation. Some are believers in Jesus Christ, some are non-believers. Non-believers are uh, sent to Hades to await their final judgment. Believers are, remain on the earth in their natural, physical, human bodies. Uh, if you were to you know, have to go through the tribulation and survive it, uh, and you were a believer at the end of that time, you would just go into that kingdom time in your regular, natural, physical body, uh, and then you would begin to have children and repopulate the earth. And this would be going on for a thousand years. Um, during that future time, uh, righteousness and holiness will prevail, but those with earthly bodies will still have a sin nature, and there will be a need to teach about how offensive sin is to a holy and righteous God. Animal sacrifices will serve that purpose. Hebrews 10.3 says this of, the, of the, the Mosaic law. It says, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. The same need for a reminder of sins year by year will be in the future. Uh, people will need to see what it cost 
for them to be saved. The conditions that will prevail during Christ's reign on the earth might even make animal sacrifices more necessary than they've ever been. I mean, those born in, say, year 500, are they really going to understand what it was like that Jesus was crucified on a cross at Calvary? When they see Jesus in his glorified body ruling and reigning on the earth and you and I in glorified bodies in almost ideal conditions on the earth, a near-perfect environment, are they really going to understand what it means that Jesus died this criminal's death on the cross? Well, they will as they participate in the temple feasts and in the temple sacrifices. Millions of children will be born who will still need to be born again. It's hard enough in today's fallen world to convince your kids there is real physical danger. Don't you hate that about kids? You know, you, you can never convince them that there are axe murderers. That's just a, that's a personal thing with us, as you can tell. Whenever we wanted to really just freak the kids out, we'd say there are axe murderers out there. And... Uh, Sometimes there are, but anyway, uh, you know, there's danger out in the world, and your kids, they don't, either they don't realize it or they don't want to realize it. You know, they, they think everything's going to be fine, nothing bad is ever going to happen, uh, and this is a fallen earth we live in where terrible things are happening left and right, day by day. Imagine during the millennial kingdom when things are near perfect, when, I mean, I, I say this tongue-in-cheek, it'll be an environmentalist dream. Uh, you know, because the conditions on the earth will be just pristine, streams in the desert and all kinds of great things will be going on. Uh, it's going to be tough to convince people that there is real spiritual danger uh, and that they need to be born again. The devil is even going to be in jail. He's going to be incarcerated for the thousand years down in the abyss. But at the end of the thousand years, he's going to be let out. And what does he do? He leads a rebellion. And millions upon millions upon millions of people who were born into the uh, millennial kingdom, we read in the book of the Revelation, join him in revolting against Jesus Christ. And they seek to destroy the Lord. Well, he quickly puts that down. And so, so there's a real need in the millennium to demonstrate uh, what it means that Jesus Christ was uh, crucified, died, and rose from the dead. And these sacrifices will uh, uh, do that. They will do that. Scholars have compared the description of the feasts and sacrifices Ezekiel present, presents with those under the Mosaic law. And it's interesting because there are really significant differences I used to think, if you don't read Ezekiel and you just hear a little bit, you think, oh, well, they're, they're just going to do the Mosaic sacrifices again. They're going to do the Mosaic law. And we'll see some of this as we go, but I'm just giving you kind of an introduction. Uh, it's, it's similar, but it's different. And this leads us to believe, of course, that, yes, it is real. It's, it's, it's literal, like the rest of the book. There really will be a system of sacrifice in this temple. Not all the feasts or all the articles of furniture described by Moses are included by Ezekiel. There's no mention of the veil. There was a veil in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple that separated you from the Holy of Holies. It, it, it portrayed the idea that, that you had to do something in order to go through the veil and be in the very presence of God. Of course, when Jesus was crucified, you remember one of the things that happened is that veil was torn from top to bottom. 
It symbolized to the Jewish people that the way is now open into God's presence. And so in the millennial temple, there's no mention of the veil. There won't be a veil in that temple because there's no longer a barrier between man and God. There's no mention of the table of showbread uh, in the millennial temple because Jesus Christ, the bread of life, will be literally present. There's no mention of lampstands in the millennial temple because Jesus Christ, the light of the world, will be on the earth. There's no mention of the Ark of the Covenant because it'll be unnecessary. The glory of God will fill the whole earth. Everybody's really fascinated with the Ark of the Covenant all the time and wanting to find it and, you know, and will it be found for the temple that's going to be built. There, it's not, if they find it, uh, you know, which I doubt, and put it in the tribulation temple, God's going to throw it out when he gets to the millennial temple. It's not there because... Uh, the glory of God will fill the whole earth. And so the temple is going to be there, but it's going to be different than the Old Testament temple, uh, and some of the feasts will be different. There will be no feast of Pentecost because that has been totally fulfilled on the day of Pentecost with the birth of the church. And so very interesting to compare the mosaic sacrifices and, and temple with the millennial temple. They're, very, they're similar but very different. Uh, the system of feasts and sacrifices Ezekiel describes similar but different, and so we know that it's a real future system of worship that will be in effect in the millennial kingdom. And phones will still be outlawed. Uh, Gene and I were talking tonight about how we're one of the few churches that encourages you to turn your phone on in the sanctuary. Uh, however, it could be on vibrate. That would be better, you know, but, but we want you to keep your phone off. If you have an iPhone, you know, you can follow along on Sunday mornings. It's kind of cool. Uh, again, another icebreaker. Tell, you can go to, you go to tell your uh, people that you work with to say, hey, I love my church because they encourage us to keep our phones on. And uh, what? What's up with that? Then you can just slam them with the gospel. <laughs> Here, let me show you this. Hey, if you haven't yet, now listen, if you haven't yet, uh, just this is, this, is a, this is something you need to do. Even to strangers, this is kind of fun. If you see somebody with an iPhone and you have boldness to do this, just say, hey, is that an iPhone? You need to download the app for my church, for Calvary Hanford. It's really cool. And so what are people going to do? It's free. You know, they're, they're going to be guilted into... Oh, wait a minute. We talked about... They're going to be graced into doing that. Well, it's free, right? I mean, you're not holding a gun to their head. Here are two other random but interesting observations about Ezekiel's description of things to come. Uh, number one, the land of Israel will be redistributed among the 12 tribes. It's going to be divided into three areas. Seven tribes will occupy the northern area and five down south. Between these two areas, there seems to be a section that is called the Holy Oblation. It's a section set apart for the Lord. Merrill Unger, Bible scholar, says this, and I quote, the Holy Oblation is a spacious square, about 34 miles each way, containing about 1,200 square miles. The temple itself is located in the middle of this square, not in the city of Jerusalem, upon a very high mountain, which will be miraculously made ready for that purpose when the temple is to be erected. And so that's a kind of just an interesting thing that I really didn't know until I started studying Ezekiel. We just assume the temple will be where it's always been. But God says, no, the earth's going to be different. It's going to be 
a little bit different distribution of land, and in the middle there's going to be a mountain that I miraculously build, and that's where the temple's going to be. And then four times in these chapters we're going to be told that the sons of Zadok will be assigned the priestly duties in the temple. Zadok was a priest in King David's time, and because of his unwavering loyalty, he was promised that his offspring would have that glorious posting. And so it's very, very interesting similarities but differences uh, in the future. Looking over these nine chapters that are ahead of us, which we'll go through actually pretty rapidly after tonight. We're only going to take five verses tonight. But after that, uh, it's not that they're insignificant descriptions, but a lot of it is the description of the articles and the temple itself, and we'll, we'll cruise through that. But here's how they outline... From chapter 40 until chapter 43, verse 2, we get a description of the Millennial Temple. Uh, from chapter 43, verse 3 to chapter 46, verse 24, we get a description of the Millennial worship and sacrifice. And then the rest of the book, beginning in chapter 47, describe the new apportioning of land to the tribes of Israel. So let's get started by looking at verses 1 through 5 in chapter 40. Verse 1, in the 25th year of our captivity... At the beginning of the year, on the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year, after the city was captured, on the very same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. Now, the date is sometime uh, around 573 B.C. The phrase, the beginning of the year, isn't uh, totally uh, easy to point down or to pin down. The Israelite religious new year began in what is our April or May. It was called their, year of Nis or their month of Nisan. Uh, no relation to the car company, and was established at the time of the Exodus. However, in Israel's later history, the seventh month, which is about our October or November, the month Tishri became established as the first, first month of the Jewish civil year. And so we're not exactly sure uh, what, um, what Ezekiel means by the beginning of the year. So the date could be either April 28, 573 B.C. or October 22nd. 573 B.C. It says here that God took Ezekiel to Jerusalem. We'll see in a minute he was uh, transported to the future by means of a waking vision. And, and just pause for a moment and remember what a crazy ministry Ezekiel had. I mean, as, as terrifying as it would be just to have this kind of a vision, I mean, this was lightweight if you're Ezekiel. This was, you know, I mean, remember Ezekiel for a time was a voluntary mute he, he could speak, but he didn't because God said, I only want you to talk when I tell you to talk. And then he bound himself with cords and would hang out in his house as a prisoner uh, to represent the captivity of the Jews. Uh, he built a model of Jerusalem out in front of his house and lay on one side, then the other for a long time and played army men. You know, as they lay, he lay siege to Jerusalem, and as a part of that, he was making food on an open oven, and, and he made it with excrement from animals because he was portraying what the conditions were going to be like uh, during the siege of Jerusalem. Uh, he dug a hole at one point in the wall of his house. He dug through the wall of his house to uh, symbolize some things, and so, um, you know, when God comes to you and says, I'm going to give you a vision, it's like, Wow. You know, that's the most normal thing that's ever happened to Ezekiel. And so uh, as the book winds down, he has this waking vision. Verse 2, In the visions of God, he took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. On it toward the south was something like the structure of a city. 
Ezekiel is going to go on a tour of the future temple in which uh, he records everything in painstaking detail. It says in verse 3, he took me there. And behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. Since this man is later called Lord, we believe it's a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance in bodily form by Jesus Christ. Verse 4, And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and fix your mind on everything I show you. For you were brought here so that I might show them to you. Declare to the house of Israel everything you see. Ezekiel is told to give this tour his full and undivided attention. At first, that struck me as odd. Here he was transported by a waking vision to the future, and he knows he's in the presence of the Lord. Do, does he really need to be told to pay attention? I mean, you know, what, what else is he going to be looking at? Uh, but apparently he did need to be told to, be pay, uh, to pay attention because that's what the Lord does. And it just ministered to me how much more then do we need to be reminded to pay attention to the things the Lord is showing us and telling us and teaching us. Maybe just a reminder that all around us, just in the everyday uh, doing of life, the Lord is desiring to speak to us and to show us His grace and His mercy and His love, uh, still in pictures, sometimes in words, uh, sometimes He'll whisper to your heart, but uh, we want to be reminded that, uh, you know, the Lord is there. I mean, it, it, we read the Word. It's not just in the Word, that the, you know, in the reading of the Word that God reveals Himself to us, but it's, it's through the Word as we get the Word in us and then we're thinking with a Christian worldview and we're having the mind of Christ and allowing the Spirit to speak and those kinds of things. Uh, and then the other thing, of course, the Lord tells Ezekiel, He goes, you're going to have to tell others. Uh, you're, you're on tour with me. I'm going to show you this so that you can tell your uh, fellow Israelites in exile. And so I think there needs to be a part of us that realizes that we take in to give out. And so when we do come to the Lord and when He does fill us and refresh us and teach us, uh, it's not just for us. Uh, the Barna Group, which is, I mean, they do good research. They're a little bit out there sometimes in terms of, of being emergent and all that. But uh, they just published some new research on the state of the church in America. Gino was reading it this morning to the men's ministry. Uh, and, and one of the startling uh, findings that of the Barna Group is that the church has become more and more and more ingrown uh, the church in America, and not really interested as it used to be in evangelism and outreach. And so that's just a trend that they noticed in churches uh, that they are becoming ingrown. They care about themselves. Uh, and, uh, you know, our understanding from uh, just reading the Bible and, of course, the book of Ephesians is we come uh, to be edified, to be built up, to do the work of the ministry which is mostly outside the walls of the church. So the church, in incredibly important. God's bride, uh, Jesus' bride on the earth, Jesus raised it up, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, etc., etc. And we have fellowship with each other, we encourage one another, we bless one another, uh, but a big part of what we do is, is go out and minister to others. There's some other findings there that, you know, most Christians don't even, they don't even want to hang around with non-believers anymore. You know, it's a, and, and so it's a problem. It's a problem. And so Ezekiel, God says, I want you to pay close attention to what I'm going to show you because you need to share this with others. 
and uh, so uh, good reason for us to, to be on board with the word. Uh, verse 5, now there was a wall all around the outside of the temple, and the man's hand was a measuring rod, six cubits long, each being a cubit and a hand breadth. And he measured the width of the wall structure, one rod, and the height, one rod. A cubit, somewhere around 18 inches. Uh, there's a long cubit and a short cubit. I, you know, I can barely read a, uh, you know, a yardstick, so I'm, I'm not all over this. But So it's around 18 inches, and a hand breadth is about three and a half inches. It may not sound like much of a tool with our micrometer precision, you know, that we have, but... Uh, in this guy's hand, it's going to be sufficient to show Ezekiel everything that he needs to know. It's not so much the tool as it is the craftsman using it. When it's the Lord, he can accomplish all his heart desires. I mean, let's face it, we all like that, you know, uh, is it a song or a soliloquy where, you know, the, they find the old fiddle in the, in the, in the shop? <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? They find the old fiddle and it's all, you know, decrepit, but then in the hand of the master, he you know, and he just plays the heart out of the thing, you know, and stuff, and it's all about, you know, the, the fiddle in the master's hand. And, and you know, that's basically the, the point tonight. I wanted to get a little country on you there, you know, and stuff. But uh, oh, it's like the ad on TV with Charlie Daniels. Is it a Geico ad? It's a Geico ad, you know, where he's playing the fiddle, you know, and he goes, that's how it's done, son. You know, and stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's all in who's playing the instrument. Uh, and so, uh, you know, one thing that we see in this uh, as a devotional insight for us tonight, uh, the Lord loves to plan and build. It's, it's something He really loves to do. Uh, we know that Jesus created the universe because Colossians says in 1.15 and following, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. When the Lord was on the earth that He created, He said He would build on it His church. Matthew 16, 18, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades uh, shall not prevail against it. Now that the Lord's in heaven, we're awaiting his return and he promised to be doing what? To be building our mansions. John 14, excuse me, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I remember a Bible teacher one time, he was reading this, and he said, he said if, you, if you have a version that's, that replaces the word mansions with dwelling places, he said, just throw that out and get a decent version, because, uh, you know, dwelling place, what's that? I mean, a trailer is a dwelling place. A mobile home is a dwelling place. Under a bridge in a tent is a dwelling place. Jesus is building mansions in heaven. They're uh, in the New Jerusalem, which is described in the book of the Revelation as a phenomenal city built of all precious gems and jewels and all of this kind of thing. And so, yes, it's a, it's a place where you will dwell, but it's a mansion. Uh, it's, it's a magnificent structure. You are his work also. Individually, we are each called the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
He's building into your life those things that will endure for eternity. He can use anything really to accomplish his project in you. Things usually fall into one of two categories. They're either blessings or buffetings, or you might say they are times of abounding or times of being abased. The thing that will strike you and I, uh, and well, I dare say it will bore you about these nine chapters, is the attention to detail. I mean, it, it shows no disrespect to the Word of God when you're reading through a genealogy to sigh and think, wow, I can't even pronounce these names. And, but, it, but it's in my daily reading, and I'm going to, I'm going to go read it, you know, because it's just, it would be sinful to skip ahead, wouldn't it? But everybody feels that way. And, and now we've got like nine chapters of minute detail about the future millennial temple. And quite honestly, you and I don't care that much about it. I'm, I mean, I, I'm trying to be respectful, but we don't. Uh, however, well, we don't care because we're not Israel. If you were a Jew and you started to lock into this, that would be great. But you are his project, and he who began this good work in you has promised to complete it. And the reminder, as you go through this, one thing that will thrill you is that you, maybe you're not as interested as you could be or should be or need to be or want to be in that future temple, but that same builder is building with that same detail into your personal life every day. And, and if there could be a book written about you, uh, and it would go into such minute detail, but you would care about it because it's about you. I know we would care about it because we take thousands of digital photographs. We have all kinds of video devices. We record everything that we do, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's fun to go back and look and, oh, yeah, that was there and this and all that. And, and of course, as you get older, it becomes necessary because you can't remember, you know, anything anymore. When I went down to my parents' 70th anniversary, man, do I'm the only one with a real memory of anything that happened in my house now, you know, because all my brothers are older than me and my dad. They were talking about stuff, and the way they said it happened, no, it's like from another universe, you know, and stuff. And they're, luck, too bad there's not any pictures, you know, because that was all. I remember going to Disneyland with the old, uh, you know, Super 8 movie camera. You'd have to go in the dark and try and change the, the film. Do you remember that? Do you remember having to change film in the dark? You got, and there, where do you go to be in the dark at Disneyland, you know? And, and, and then it's crazy, you know, and stuff. And then, God forbid, somebody, oh, no, don't open the door, you know? And then the first, the first five feet of the film are all, you know, washed out like they were in a nuclear blast or something like that. It was crazy just to get a few reels of film and, and stuff. And now, I mean, I could take, our average day at Disneyland is, is a thousand photos. Uh, you know, it's like th uh, three hours of just downloading photos in the evening, you know, and stuff. And, and so I know that if, th if there was stuff about you and I, you know, we would be intensely interested in it. And so maybe we're really not, I'm just being honest, maybe we're not as interested as we should be in the Millennial Temple once we answer a few key questions. Uh, cubits and rods, they don't make any sense to us, you know, uh, in even the measurements of it. But that same uh, Jesus, uh, he's the master craftsman in your life. And uh, what you see there is that every single detail 
is important to him. And the same is true of you. Amen.